Good morning, everybody, and thank you for joining us for another uh, SACPA session this morning. And during this time of social and physical distancing, SACPA believes it's important to keep engaging with the public on the issues of the day. And in order to do so, we are very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. SACPA believes it's providing a safe place for everybody to participate in meaningful, meaningful conversation. And we'll do our best to preserve and promote such, such a context on all of those settings. Um, today we have with us Dr. Trishar Patel uh, on the topic of COVID-19 vaccines. Are there any reasons to be concerned about the efficacy and long-term safety? Dr. Patel's goal is to obtain detailed insights into how viral nucleic acid interacts with host proteins by employing interdisciplinary approaches. Information on the specific sites of host proteins that communicate with viral nucleic acids will ultimately allow the development of therapeutics that prevent host viral communications. These interactions are essential for the survival and replication of virus stopping the interactions is thus of benefit for treating viral infections. Patel's research program is timely given recent global incidences of viral outbreaks and in many cases, the lack of available treatment and the failure of currently available drugs designed to target viral components. So we really thank you for joining us today, Dr. Patel, and we look forward to your talk. Thank you very much for that kind introduction, Annalise. And before I begin, I'd like to thank the organizers, the Southern Alberta Council of Public Affairs, to give me this opportunity to talk about the current pandemic, the lessons that we can and we have learned. And I'll also try to clarify some confusions that are um, that are going around. So can you go to the next slide, please? Um, so before we move on, we want to uh, take a look at this slide uh, that outlines the central dogma of life or of molecular biology, where we all have now heard about these terms, um, for example, DNA, which is the deoxyribonucleic acid, that is a double-stranded hereditary material for humans and all the higher eukaryotes and bacteria, contains the information to code for a unique piece of nucleic acid called ribonucleic acid. Um, and one of the most important ribonucleic acid, known as messenger RNA, further contains information to make functional building blocks called proteins. So as you see on this slide, um, there's DNA outlined there, and there's RNA outlined there. Now, I want you to remember that this messenger RNA is one of the key factors, as we all know, for the two vaccines, and we'll go there um, uh, and we'll talk about it more uh, in, in coming slides. Uh, can you go to the next slide, please? So, um, as I mentioned, for DNA is main hereditary genetic material for humans and plants and bacteria and higher organisms. Viruses, I find very fascinating creatures in the sense that they contain both DNA and RNA as their genetic material. 
and they have different flavors within both categories. So viruses themselves are very complex organisms that can contain either the double-stranded or single-stranded DNA genome, double-stranded or single-stranded RNA genome. And the focus that we have uh, recently uh, been seeing is this category fourth, that's a single-stranded RNA viruses. A lot of us have heard about Zika, from previous pandemic, uh, encephalitis, dengue. So these are all single-stranded RNA viruses, and sars coronavirus falls in the same category in terms of the genetic information. So what do I mean by positive sense RNA? This positive sign indicates that these viruses contain the genetic material that is very close in terms of the structure and function of messenger RNA. So as soon as these viruses infect our cell, they will hijack our protein synthesis machinery and they'll start making viral proteins already to make more particles. So their life cycle is relatively simpler and quicker. Um, and we also know other viruses and we can talk about it uh, in the future, uh, some fascinating viruses such as hepatitis B viruses or human immune deficiency viruses, they fall in different categories. So this just shows the complex world of um, viruses. And now that we established that they are complicated uh, in terms of their makeup and composition, we can move on to the next slide where we see um, this slide represents that if you focus at the top, now this is the increase in global outbreaks due to the infectious diseases, so infectious pathogens, sorry, and that encompasses bacteria, viruses, and other organisms. However, if you focus on the lighter green and darker green colors, as we go from 1980s to late 80s to early 2000s, you can see that globally we have seen increases in infectious diseases and pandemics that are caused by viruses and bacteria. The bottom line shows that as we go from 80s to late 2000s, human-to-human transmission, so that is the orange line, and the yellow line, there's zoonosis, so infectious diseases spread originating from animals and coming to humans, and they both are also increasing. The point of this slide is that this is not the first pandemic, and clearly it will not likely be the last pandemic. So we got to be prepared, and we got to learn a lot of lessons out of this to avoid the situations um, in the future. And so if you can go to the next slide. Um, so where does my lab come in? So we in my lab talk about uh, a study about um, communications between the viral and host components, right? So we prepare and purify fragments of viral nucleic acids. And I want to emphasize fragments. We are not working with full viruses. I just want to avoid the confusion. So next time you come on campus, you don't get scared. So we work with the fragments of nucleic acids from encephalitis, Zika, Hunter, hepatitis, and now SARS-CoV-2 viruses. We also make a lot of viral proteins and we study their communication with human proteins. And this is really important because often the basic research, such as what our lab does, allows us 
to do this translational drug discovery vaccine type research in the future. And as we go on in, uh, in the next sections, I will tell you why this pandemic has seen the rapid progress in vaccine development. It is because we have done a lot of preliminary work um, by other groups uh, in terms of the basic research. And I strongly believe that investment in education and basic research is important because we want to train the next generation of scientists, uh, medical doctors, health professionals, epidemiologists, all of it, um, so that we are better prepared. Um, so education is, is key overall um, in this pandemic. Can you go to the next slide, please? So I'm not going to talk a whole lot about my own research program um, today because University of Lethbridge has graciously organized a public professor talk which is on March 25th at 7 p.m. You can go to this link and you can register there. And I'm gonna talk about the awesome work that my team here shown in the picture on the left has been doing here. Um, but I will give you some outline and details and clarify some confusions of coronavirus pandemic and the vaccines that we have been seeing lately. Uh, with that, can we go to the next slide, please? Okay. So coronaviruses, um, we have heard this word before, a lot of us who have a memory that goes back to 2000s. The first outbreak of coronavirus came in 2002, lasted for about a year or two. Um, I remember traveling around that time and that was not fun. Um, so this coronavirus was identified in 2002 and it caused severe acute respiratory syndrome. The next version of coronavirus, although it was a little bit different, came in 2012, um, known as the MERS, that caused this Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. And as we all know, uh, in 2019, uh, late 2019, we had the first cases identified in Wuhan, China, for this version of SARS coronavirus 2. People often use COVID-19 as the virus interchangeably. COVID-19 is actually a disease that is caused by SARS coronavirus 2. So the virus itself is known as SARS-CoV-2 and the disease is known as COVID-19. So I just want to clarify that interchangeable usage of the, um, of, of, the, of the terminology. Can you go to the next slide, please? So figure on the left shows very basic structure of this virus. As you can see at the top, this virus contains in the black a protein, a set of proteins known as S or the spike protein. And this spike protein is the basic determinant of how this virus will internalize itself to our body, okay? So this spike protein when we get this virus in our body, we'll find our cells. So this is a human cell, for example. And the human cell has a receptor called ACE2 receptor. And the contact between the spike protein from virus and the human protein, ACE2, allows the virus to internalize in our body, in our cell. Upon entry, the virus will release its ribonucleic acid, the generic material, which will be readily available for protein synthesis. So virus come to our body, it's like an unwanted guest. It comes to our body, it takes all of our machinery and it recruits our protein synthesis assembly and make wild protein 
And eventually, when fully assembled, thousands and thousands of water particles will be escaped from a single cell attacking the neighboring cell. So you can see that time to come into the body, contacting the cell, and releasing thousands of particles is extremely small window. And this pandemic has been very bad in all the um, all the aspects of our life. These are the data at a at a today morning where we had globally seen over 5,000 cases. Um, out of the 80 million close, nearly 80 million close cases, we have seen over 2.28 million people um, losing their lives. And so this is clearly a, a severe pandemic, and we should be we should be very cautious about this. Um, can you go to the next slide, please? And so. In this slide, there might be animation, but there are two panels. There is panel on the left and there is panel on the right. The panel on the left tells us that although the first point of contact is the respiratory tract because it's a respiratory virus and it, it, it affects our upper respiratory tract, lower respiratory tract, all the way to the lungs, this is how we develop the breathing issues uh, with severe infections. People also have to be uh, go to the hospitals and they are put on ventilators again because of the breathing issues. However, I do want to point out that scientists have now established that these virus do affect other does affect other body parts as well. So people have seen um, medical doctors have seen the um, the functions of heart and blood vessels not um, uh, having properly working so the cardiac inflammation is one of the one of the symptoms they have seen in terms of the heart the brain and eyes are also uh, getting affected because the ACE2 receptor is essentially present in many cell types in many organs so the virus once it comes to your body can travel to other body parts and can affect other organs one of the symptoms that people have now been noticing is the the loss of sense of smell. So people have now seen that the smell is also affected. We also now have cases where the liver, kidney, and intestines are, bit, are getting damaged as well. So we have to sit tight, watch information carefully coming out through research. And um, uh, if we got, um, you know, if we fought this virus off and we recovered, that doesn't mean that um, we may not have a long-term impact like this slide shows. There could be a long-term impact on individual to individual cases, so something that we should keep in mind. So what can we do about uh, preventing the spread of this virus? Well, the first and foremost important thing is physical distancing. The physical distancing can allow us to reduce the transmission significantly as low as 2 to 3%. The second thing we can do is actually wear masks and wear masks properly. I've seen people um, wearing masks where the nose is not covered. If you see my face, this is how we actually wear the mask. Not that I'm also branding University of Lethbridge logo here. Wearing a mask like this, it's not good for you and it's not good for anybody else. Um, so that's one thing we can do. Um, and combining the face mask and social distancing allows us to actually contain this virus pretty significantly and, 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 and avoid the transmission to our loved ones and to the community. Can you go to the next slide, please? So there is a common confusion uh, among people that this virus is just like a flu virus. 
Uh, however, I would like to point out that this is not a flu virus and there are reasons behind it. So some of you, and actually this pandemic has been transformational in terms of public education and knowledge. So we have learned so much in, as a community that we did not know before. And one of the things we learn is R0 number. So what is that number? Well, the R0 number, if it is close to one or less than one, that means that if I'm infected, the chances of me spreading the infection would be one person or the less person. That means that this particular infection will not be converted to pandemic. The virus or the bacteria eventually will get out of circulation, which is the case with flu virus. That's why it keeps going away. However, with COVID-19 disease or SARS-CoV-2 virus, the situation is a little bit different with the R0 number going as high as three. What does that mean? That means if I have the virus, um, if I'm infected, and if I don't contain the virus, and if I don't quarantine, if I don't um, follow the guidelines, then I'm going to be able to infect three other people. And then the, those three people in turn can infect three people each, so that becomes nine people. So there is this pyramid effect, and that is that basically means that this will lead to pandemic situation, which is exactly what the entire world is currently going through. So there's a first major distinction. The second distinction is incubation time. So with the flu infection, we note the changes in our body and the symptoms very rapidly. Within four days, for example, as shown here in, in the middle panel on the left, in the middle panel on the right, you can see with the SARS-CoV infection, it can take up to 14 days before we realize that something is off with our body and we might be infected with this virus. And by 14 days, we have seen a lot of people and we have met a lot of people. So it's too late until you know that you have spread the infection to community members and your loved ones. There are also instances where people have not seen any symptoms. So there are asymptomatic carriers that don't even know that I'm a carrier of this virus and I'm infecting other people, right? So the second biggest uh, distinction and the hospitalization rate. Um, this slide is outdated somewhat, and I am saying outdated because over the last one year, information has changed every day. So this was made last fall, and around that time, the hospitalization rate was close to 20% because of the SARS-CoV infection, which actually has gone up quite a bit. Not the case with flu. And the last important distinction is the case fatality rate, or the, it loosely what it means is people dying um, after infection. And so in one of my earlier slides, I showed that about 3% people who are infected with SARS-CoV-2 unfortunately has lost their lives. Uh, the plot on the right-hand side is actually a snapshot that I took from Alberta Health Services last night that shows at the bottom, although the, the fonts are really tiny, my apologies for that, that shows that over the last two months, we have seen a rapid increase in number of people dying. If we follow the news every day, we see, unfortunately, we lose a lot of community members every day. So the death rate is actually... Um, going upwards as well. So this is another confusion that we can clarify about it not being flu. Can you go to the next slide, please? Okay. So the other common confusion we see in community is uh, the origin. And I think we are all rushing to 
conclude based on the loose evidences um, that it could have escaped, the virus could have escaped from a lab. However, I do want to point out that there is no credible evidence of any sort that suggests that virus has escaped from the lab. In fact, it is so complicated to figure out how we end up with this virus, our humans had it. Um, there are many reasons for it. As you can see on this figure on the top right, so a good friend of mine, a uh, very, very smart colleague, uh, evolutionary uh, biologist, he uh, published a paper that suggested that the bats already has many, many, many bat coronaviruses circulating. So the bat could have given that coronavirus, bat coronavirus to other bats who then evolved eventually ended up to either pangolin, so if you follow the line seven, or in another host. And eventually these bat coronaviruses, pangolin coronaviruses with coevolution or adaptation have evolved to come to the SARS coronavirus. And by any of these streams or arrows could have ended up in humans. So it is very difficult to exactly pinpoint the origin because we don't have that much uh, that much information yet, and scientists are working along with WHO to actually track down the origin. One of the other reasons why this is very difficult is because, as noted on this slide, we have over 3,000 species of bat coronavirus that we know so far. We don't know what's known, what's not known. So we don't know how many other species out there that we have not identified, okay? So one thing. And there were 1,400 bat species. Second important point to know. So the combination of these thousands of species from bats and coronaviruses could give a number of potential combinations of virus evolution, and therefore it is extremely difficult to point out the exact origin. But like I said, people are working hard to get it. Can you go to the next slide, please? So the other misconception in, um, in the community is that quote unquote, if we reduce the number of cycles, we would not have as many positively infected patients. Um, I would like to point out that sadly, um, um, a lot of people have ignored the fundamental principle of the test, the technique that, 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 that is being utilized to test the COVID-19 or SARS-CoV infection. The technique is called polymerase chain reaction or PCR. And I don't want to go through the whole detail, but if you go in the middle of the figure on the left, it says primer. Again, my apologies for a very small font here, but primer means there is a short, short, short fragment of nucleic acid. And that is exactly complementary to the information that SARS coronavirus genome has. It's like a lock and key model. So when the when the sample is being taken to test whether you are positive or negative, these primers will only and only bind to the genomic information from SARS coronavirus. They are very accurate. And therefore, even if they increase the number of cycles or reduce the number of cycles to be able to detect the signal with a, with a, with a strong confidence, that does not change the outcome. Like I said, the primer is like a key. It will only bind to the log when it's a perfect match. And so the, can we go to the next slide and I'll finish the, the message there. So the next slide showed with the Alberta Health Services and Public Health Ontario, where the Alberta Health Services performed 
using the same PCR method, uh, primers that were specifically designed for coronavirus genome, they tested 31 different respiratory pathogens in the laboratory to find out if these parameters by accident bind to any of these viruses and detect them. And the answer was zero. They found that there is a zero case where they, they, where they could find that these primers designed for coronaviruses would identify any other virus. That means it is 100% specific, right? So the case is the positives. There is, there is absolutely no doubt about it. The public at Ontario did a similar study, and they found that the false positivity rate, that means that by accident, if somebody who is not infected was found to be infected, the probability is less than 0.01%. Again, proving the same message, the same outcome using different uh, approach, that these tests are very accurate, right? So that ends the confusion that we have right there. Okay, so can you go to the next slide, please? So what are scientists doing since last year and even before? Well, they've been working really hard from the first outbreak um, of, of, of SARS coronavirus and uh, are trying to understand the host viral communication, how these viruses come to our body, how they hijack our body, and like the unwanted guests that never leave our body uh, in many cases. Um, what is the impact of this infection in different organs, you know? What is the viral evolution and adaptation going on? A lot of public policy, um, drug discovery research, and most importantly, they have been working really hard to get vaccines research. Um, so now we switch the gears when we go to the next slide to show um, that why vaccines matter, why do we need vaccines? Now again, this is a this is a small font slide, and I don't want to read you anything in there. I just want to follow you the symbols. For any disease, if you look at the lines, the the horizontal, you can see the big bubbles are basically the number of infected cases before in the dark brown circle. That's where the vaccine was introduced. As you can see, there is an immediate impact. Look at the measles, immediate impact. There's so many cases, so many cases, and then we have a vaccine and boom. The number of cases goes down significantly, right? Across the board, you see, what does that tell you? That tells you that vaccines are the strongest indicator, the biggest army we have to fight any pandemic. Any brown circle that you see, any dark circle, um, not the blue, blue is the number of cases, right? And you can see as soon as the vaccine was introduced, the number of cases across the world goes down. The next slide tells a case about polio, right? So polio was one of the biggest concern before the pandemic, uh, before the uh, vaccines came in. Now, mind you, this uh, graph was made, uh, the right-hand side was made in 2019, where you can see already, except Africa, in 2019, the world was certified polio-free. In the August 2020, after having no confirmed cases for four years in Nigeria, the WHO certified that uh, the entire South African continent is also polio-free. Again, the impact of vaccine shows that vaccines do work. Currently, we only have two countries um, that have, as, as you can see right next to India, that has polio pandemic going on despite the, of the presence of vaccine because of the lack of vaccination programs. Can you go to the next slide, please? 
So this is again smallpox vaccine that tells you that um, the vaccines do really work. So since um, I talked a lot and in the interest of time, could we skip one, two slides and we go to this slide, third slide that has uh, vaccines in development? Okay. So a lot of people have concern about how come we have so many vaccines that were developed in a relatively short time. The left, the right-hand side top shows us the typical time that takes for vaccine development in years, rightly so, people are concerned that the bottom plot that shows a year, half a year, a year, that one and a half year that we have the vaccine. Some points, we already had so much information that we learned from the previous infections, from SARS and MERS uh, infection. So the scientists used that information because we were already in pandemic, what happened was that the scientists, the government funding agencies, the, the researchers, um, and, and the companies came together and they did work over at night day. They did do uh, clinical trials that is shown here at the bottom, phase one, phase two, or the overlapping clinical trial. They did perform phase three trial and no corners were cut. Um, it was just remarkable that we could actually put all these things together in a short time. Now, if we can skip the next slide and go to the slide after. So that is the coronavirus vaccine tracker as of day before yesterday. And that does show that we have many vaccine candidates coming along the line in phase one, two, and three trial. We have three approved vaccines and seven authorized to use. Note that there are four vaccines that were that were not continued. So, the vaccines that were not found deemed to suitable for for their use, they have been stopped by the companies themselves, right? So, all the cross checks were done. And like I said, if you look at the bottom, we have the biotech, Pfizer, and Moderna vaccines approved in Canada, which are messenger RNA based vaccines. And Novavax has filed, I believe, on uh, January 31st um, for an approval. And I will answer all those questions that you have about uh, mRNA vaccines in the question answer period. I'm going to leave it uh, purposefully empty at this stage. Can you go to the next slide, please? Okay. So, what this slide shows is that we already have. Um, over 104 million people across the world as of yesterday vaccinated, which is remarkable, right? So this is a, this is a great outcome. Israel is leading the efforts with over 60 doses for 100 people. Um, US and UK are catching up pretty quickly uh, as well. In Canada, we already have vaccinated about a million people. Again, without a severe negative outcome, we have this data now in front of us that we have vaccinated over 104 million people. If we can skip the next slide and we go to the slide after. So if you have questions about viral mutations, I skip the slide, then you can ask me the question, I'll answer the question. But I want to draw your attention to this recent mutation that um, people are talking about called the British variant. Now, mind you, that viruses mutate all the time. And this pandemic has been again instrumental in educating the community. Um, that they now know viral mutation. So this mutation was, this mutant version was concerning because out of 17 total mutation, they saw eight mutations in the spike protein. And if you go to the next slide, one of the key mutation in the spike protein that is responsible for high affinity interaction 
with the ACE2 receptor. So remember I told you at the beginning, the viral spike protein binds to the human ACE2 receptor and it is responsible. This process helps virus to internalize. So this mutation nickname Mali, because asparagin N, residue at 501 position, is mutated to tyrosine Y. So you can see the, the very simple chemical change. So this is asparagin structure, and this is tyrosine structure. This simple chemical change in the spike protein allows us, allows it to bind with high um, high confidence to our receptor. Concerning this mutation has been seen in Brazilian, South African variants, and there are other variants as well. So all these viruses mutated independently in the rest of the world, and one common theme they had was this particular mutation. Um, can we go to the next slide, please? And there are also other mutations that I briefly pointed out here that people are, are trying to, scientists are trying to uh, phase out the information. Some of the mutation could allow for higher infection rate and some of the mutation could allow viruses to escape the treatment. Having said that, all the approved vaccine providers have performed additional studies and they have been confidently, they, they say it in the recent days and the last few days, that their vaccines are effective against these new mutations. So there is, there is a clear hope that we have that the vaccines are going to help us, um, help us uh, put an end to this pandemic. So the next slide answers some of the question. And again, I'm happy to address these particular concerns people have about the mRNA vaccine in the question answer period. Um, and the slide after it, I, I put a I put a list of um, summary. So if you can go to the next slide, I don't know if it is nice to see or not, but I compiled some literature information that is, that is easy enough for community to read and clarifies um, some, some, some confusions. And also provide up-to-date information on the viral mutations, uh, vaccine development, uh, vaccine tracking, and all of it. And uh, I would like to end here. I think I used up my 30 minutes. Um, I like to talk, like I said. So I'm happy to answer the questions um, you may have now. Excellent. And um, for anybody listening, um, if you want a copy of that additional reading, we can post it afterwards on the YouTube uh, on the YouTube um, event. Um, so if you check later, I'll post it up there. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Our first question comes from Colleen, Colleen Quintel. Can you speak on the variants and why they emerge slash mutate? I think you covered some of that, but yeah. So the the so viruses mutate all the time. Part of the reason for RNA viruses to mutate with a higher rate is because they use this enzyme called RNA dependent RNA polymerase. So this enzyme make more copies of their genetic material that is RNA. Now, unlike humans, which we have DNA polymerases in RNA polymerases, we have proofreading activity. So our polymerases make sure that these um, newly synthesized nucleic acid chains do not have any variations in that. Whereas viruses, they actually don't have that capacity to cross-check whether the newly synthesized chain um, have any changes to the original change, right? 
And if you and so for most organisms, mutations are not beneficial. For viruses, sometimes they are beneficial. So, for example, if I'm given a treatment that targets one pathway of viral life cycle, so to say, the viruses will make thousands of copies from one cell and 9,999 dies because they all have weird combinations of the genetic makeup and therefore the building blocks proteins. They only need a single mutation that will then not allow the drug to work, the treatment that I'm taking to work. And then that particular mutated version will just live happily ever after in your body, so to say, not ever after, but you get the point. And so often these mutations for viruses happen because of the RNA dependent RNA polymerase proofreading activity not being there. And they carry out these mutations because it's, it's advantageous for the survival. Okay. Um, our next question comes from Knut Peterson. My grandson tested COVID positive and his only symptoms were headaches. Yet his siblings slash parents were not infected even though they live in close quarters. Are some people naturally immune? That is a very heavy question. Um, so we don't have the exact data on the immunity based on the previous infections. So, for example, if people were infected with SARS-CoV version 1 and they had developed immunity, maybe, maybe not, we actually don't know that answer. Um, and even if they were infected, for example, they might have cleared an infection very quickly. So the PCR test coming negative, that usually means that the virus is not there, but it could have been clarified pretty rapidly as well by the body. Right? So there are many factors that goes in, and unfortunately, there is no single clear answer for that question. But I'm happy to to know that they all are clear out of this uh, pandemic um, and they are yeah, safe. Okay, our next question comes from Mark Goodall. There's a lot of misinformation on social media. One is that the PCR provides much false positives because the thermal cycling is over 30 cycles or so. Uh, how important is the number of cycles and can uh, too many provide false positives and can you also comment on the whole misinformation on social media? So I have talked about this uh, PCR cycles in my talk. I can rephrase it. Um, the fundamental principle of PCR test is based on the addition of that key called the PCR primers. And these primers are extremely specific they will only detect the SARS-CoV-2 genome and nothing and nothing else. Albert Health Services did um, study where they studied these primers against 31 common respiratory syndrome viruses, and they found zero mismatch, right? So that's, that's clearly out there. Ontario Health also showed that there is less than 0.01% of person to be misidentified as... as um, uh, as, an, as a false positive. Coming back to the cycle, now what happens is that, so that's the first part of the answer. Um, what happens um, is that when we when we take a swab, so they I, I got tested and they took my nasal, my, uh, my throat swab, 
the amount of genetic information you may or may not have in that swab on viruses is extremely low. So in order to amplify the genome, they do the PCR amplification or what you call the cycles loosely, right? So the cycles will only amplify the signal if it is there. So if it is, if it is one, it'll add to one plus one plus one plus one to make it to 30 or 35 copy numbers, okay? If it is not there, it cannot make 35, 40 copy numbers to be detected, right? So that is that is a common miscon misconception, and I, I put a lot of things about, about this on social media as well. But that, that, that amplification of cycle doesn't create coronavirus genome per se to be detected. If it is not there to begin with, it doesn't matter how many cycles you amplify, you cannot create the genome of the virus, right? So if it's not there, you're not going to detect it. You only get the positive result if it was there to begin with. Okay. Um, our next question comes from Laura Schultz. News reports indicate two-part vaccinations may be mixed. And then in brackets, example, a person's first vaccination is Moderna and their second vaccination is a Pfizer. Uh, there's concerns about the effectiveness. What are your thoughts? So this is a very valid concern. And the original plan was that we would have enough um, doses coming out from both of them. And then if you got the first dose of Moderna, first dose of Pfizer, you'll get the second dose and subsequent at the same plan. However, that is not the case due to the unforeseen um, challenges. So today, this morning, actually, UK announced a first study where they are going to conduct um, uh, clinical trials involving um, first dose from X company and then the second dose from Y company, right? And so those studies are being undertaken. Um, this morning was one of the first uh, step towards it. And hopefully we will have some answers very soon. Um, and before that, it will be premature to make any conclusions out of, out, out of it. Okay, our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. Uh, we will have four or five vaccines available to us with different preparation methods. Will this give us better population protection, especially as variants develop? Um, yes, because so some some uh, so here's the thing: having choices is a great thing. You know, if I go to supermarket, if I want to buy a pack of bread, loaf of bread, and I can see different loaves of bread, and I can make the cheese and that. This week, this is what I want to eat. Um, uh, so fortunately for coronaviruses, we are in a similar situation where we have a variety of vaccines available. And so if some people are hesitant, although there is no reason to be hesitant with RNA vaccine, uh, but since some people are hesitant, just not comfortable, then they can take a DNA-based vaccine, um, um, such as Sputnik or AstraZeneca, um, or they can take a spike protein-based vaccine. So we have a lot of choices. Um, and these choices will allow us to get immunity across the community. So if you only had one type or one brand of vaccine, and if, if by any personal reason we do not take it, um, we wouldn't be protected. In this case, um, the variety is going to work out in our favor in terms of um, protection against the um, um, and, and future spread of the infection. 
Our next question comes from um, Dan Johnson. Is there some differences or is there some difference in strategic, in strategy? Is there some difference in strategy against deletion, deletion variants versus random mutations? And is there something unusual about coronavirus that will mean we will always have frequent variants arising? So the first part of the question is that deletion, deletions are also part of the mutations. A mutation can mean a change in uh, amino acid from, let's say, N to Y, asparagin N to tyrosine Y, called nickname Manly mutant, or it could be just a deletion of some region of the of the protein. So they are both part of the mutations. Um, so far, there is not a clear trend. Like I said, viruses mutate all the time. I mean, since since the inception, since the original strain in uh, late 2019, we have actually seen a lot of different mutations. We need about these more because they happen to be concerning um, in terms of the spread of pandemics so more infectious and maybe more more lethal. Um, so that's the first part of the question. And sorry, what is the second part of the question? Is there a difference? Sorry, let me just read, let me just read that again. Is there yeah. some difference in strategy against the deletion variants versus random mutations? And is there something unusual about coronavirus that will mean we always have frequent variants arising? And then actually, um, he goes on to say, as opposed to substitutions, mode of RNA change. So, um, yes, I answered the first part of the question. The second part of the question, I think Dan, Dan Johnston wants to... Um, ask, for example, if we have similar situation as flu, like we have to take new vaccine every season. I, I don't know if you mean that, but um, there is a lot of debate about this. Clearly, we don't know the answer yet because we are just over the first year uh, in terms of what we have seen so far. So our data point is limited to one year. However, the mRNA vaccine has the benefit um, to change the makeup, the composition of the of the vaccine um, molecule, such a way that it's readily, it can be readily adapted to make a new vaccine to uh, to help us um, fight the completely new variant, so to say. So there is there is a big benefit there of mRNA vaccine. So if it happens hypothetically that the spike protein, which is the main target of a lot of vaccines, completely changes its structure, we may come up with a new version of a vaccine. But so far, the current vaccines have been shown to be effective against all these variants. And I would like to address, I would like to point out this. Viruses will always mutate, as I said. The only way we can get rid of this situation is to actually get vaccinated as, as the vaccines become available and put an end to this virus out of circulation. Remember, viruses survive with our help. Knowingly or unknowingly, we're helping viruses to mutate and replicate in our body. So if we take viruses out of circulation, you know, the mutation rates will 
obviously significantly go down and we may not see it it's circulating in, in population anymore so i think at some point uh, we also have some significant role to play um, in ending this pandemic i hope that answers the question right i think it also answers our next question from colin quintel is there a possibility we will need to change the vaccines as as there are more and more mutations but i think you just yeah. answered that yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Our next question then is Mark Goodall. Did other viruses such as polio and smallpox mutate to the extent that the vaccines needed to be altered? So polio, not that much, to be honest. And uh, smallpox, I do not know the answer. I am sorry, I can find it and, um, and let you know. No, this virus. So also you have to look at the genome. So the uh, genomic size of this virus is a lot bigger than the other viruses. So this virus has RNA genome of about 20 to 23 kilo pages. So it's pretty long compared to the other RNA viruses, almost twice the size as we see for Zika, dengue, and encephalitis virus, right? So there's also the size that comes into, into play. But I do not know about the smallpox virus. Okay. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Vaccines are started. Vaccines are starting to be created here in Canada. Does Canada have the capacity to manufacture sufficient vaccines for our needs and export? Same. Your thoughts. So that would be the question that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau should answer, and not me. Um, about the manufacturing capacity, I do admit that uh, we should have that capacity already existing. But like I said, this pandemic has been very uh, educational for us in the sense that we realize that we actually should have our own vaccine um, research very strong. We do have it. We can make it even better. And we should have our own manufacturing plants to manufacture it. Having said that, we also have to consider the other situation where um there are heavy muscles um outside canada in terms of the manufacturing capacity so if you want to start building um uh, large-scale manufacturing capacity that will produce millions and millions of doses in a short amount of time that might be challenging uh, and therefore that also answered the question of exporting that that could also be challenging i think and i can only think about this i'm not a politician i'm not a policymaker the government strategy was that we have secured our 60 million doses and if they all come in time we don't have to go through the hassle of making it and manufacturing the vaccines and uh, the approach that they were taken was probably a lot faster however it didn't play out the way uh, we wanted it to play out so we are having short supplies um, so i hope that answers your question i was trying to be very diplomatic which is usually not me but i tried to not give vague answers. Okay, our next question comes from Randy G. Do you think that vac vaccinations for coronavirus will need to be administered yearly, like the current flu shot? Yeah, so like I mentioned before, um, unfortunately, we don't know that yet because flu, we have a long history over the years. Uh, coronavirus, we only have one year history, right? Um, so we do not know if the spike protein will mutate to the extent that we will not have immunity developed um, from this vaccine to protect us 
in the future. However, I do want to point this out. The mRNA vaccines or the DNA vaccines or the spike protein itself, when we get the vaccine, we have the spike protein that is that is a big protein, which is, if I give the analogy, it's, uh, for example, let's say this is the structure of the spike protein. Our body will raise antibodies against different parts and pieces of these spike protein. So even if a mutation happens here, or a mutation happens here, we will have immunity on different parts of the spike protein. So my, and again here, this is moving out of scientific evidence, because like I said, we have only one year, we don't know for sure. Um, the, the, the knowledge I have and the, my reading that, that, that I have and the immunology that I know tells me that we will have antibodies that will work against other parts of the, of the spike protein um, if small regions are, are mutated. But again, we have to wait and, and see over the next five and ten years. We have a comment from John Eng. We had the capacity Conout Labs in Toronto before it was privatized during the Moroni reign. The lab has since relocated to Europe. Um, and then we have a question by Colleen Quintel. I'm old enough that I was born pre-polio vaccination, but received it as a child. Do you feel we need to vaccine? Vac Do you feel we will, we will need the vaccines for COVID to be offered ongoing? at a young age to prevent continual spread. I think you just answered that, but yeah. So um, so thanks, John, for, for your comment. Yes, um, we did have it, and unfortunately, we lost the capacity. And again, um, hopefully this pandemic will transform the policies that, that allows us to establish more of the production facilities, the great comment. Um, and, the, and the second question was um, the, the vaccination strategy. So the current, Clinical trials were only conducted in population age at 16 and above, right? So the, the, the vaccines that are approved or approved for emergency usage, we only have data for 16 years and above. So I did not know at what point we will start vaccinating the young kids as well. So that is one part of the answer. But I want to point out the second part. Um, which is the increased in measles cases in the U.S. So U.S. was declared measles-free, um, I believe, in 2000s, where they only had less than 200, 100 cases. Um, because of these strong reasons that I would not want to say on camera, um, people had stopped taking vaccines, and now the cases are actually gone up, and it's a it's a serious concern in the U.S. Um, in 2019, they had nearly 1,300 cases. So that also tells us that even if we have eradicated some organisms throughout, you know, if they are left behind in smaller amount, they can become very chronic problem down the road over the years. So yeah, that that. Okay. And um, that 
is um, that's all the questions in the queue. We have a Laurie Schultz. Thank you for taking complex and ever evolving information and sharing it in a comprehensive yet understandable way. Looking very forward to your My public. Pleasure. Yeah, looking very forward to your public professor professor presentation on March twenty fifth. That's from Laurie Schultz. Thank uh, you. Thank our, you. Our board of our chair board chair for SACPA. Thank uh, you and. Sorry, so if I may, on 25th, yeah. I will talk about other viruses as well. So if you are curious about what other um, emerging and, and, and re-emerging pandemics and, and how, do we, how do we do research on those areas, please please join us. Okay, we, we just had a, uh, another question come in. Uh, can I sure. ask, yeah? yeah. Um, by Dan Johnson. Some countries have seen a dramatic drop in COVID-19 that goes beyond the effects of masks and distancing. For example, India in the recent months. Is it related to the environment or virus evolution? That is also a very heavy question. And um, I agree with you, there are some countries, so India has seen a rapid decline from last summer, crossing 100,000 cases all the way to very small amount of cases. Um, Quite honestly, I don't know the answer because India has also seen about 3% people dying as the rest of the world. So people do die there as well. So my parents still live in India. And um, I can tell you from the personal side, um, the you know, we, there were times where they had a really strict quarantine in place that involved... Um, um, law enforcement, um, so that could be related to that as well. They have not also seen such a huge spike in in British and Brazilian variants. Um, India also has, you know, history of pandemics from dengue to chikungunya to other viruses. So it's a complex, um, heavy loaded question that I. I don't think there's a single answer to it. But I'm also very curious. Like I said, so I was born and raised in India, and my parents lived there. And um, at some point, we had over 100,000 cases, and now we have hardly 20,000 cases. Um, so that's that's uh, that's a good sign. But again, we don't know the exact, exact answer. Okay. Thank you. Um, and I think that ends our live stream here. We have uh, a thank you from Dev... Daphnor Carr and Beth Mandel as well. Um, before we wrap up today's presentation, do you have a take-home message for our viewers today? I would suggest that please, please be careful um, what you interpret from uh, blogs and websites and kind of thing. If you are unclear or unsure, you can contact somebody. You can. You can ask me, for example. I'm easy to find on the internet. Um, my email address is around there. Um, but please stay away from uh, confusions and misinformation. Um, there were no corners cut when the vaccines were developed and designed. As, and as I said, now we have over 100 million people getting it. So again, that shows that there are safe and efficacious. So when your time comes up, I personally would take mine and I encourage you as well. Um, be safe out there, wear a mask properly, um, and care for the community. It's not always about us as an individual. Um, it's about the community that we live in, right? So it's it's about protecting not just ourselves, but our community. 
Excellent. Mona, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Patel, um, for this really excellent presentation. And um, we hope that everybody will join us again next week, Thursday, for uh, a talk with uh, Shannon Frank on the coal mining in the Old Man River watershed. What is happening and what are the long-term impacts? So look forward to seeing you um, next week on that topic.